today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 to 12. Again, that is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 to 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in a chair in front of you, and you can turn to page 905. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just now in pass see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome back to our ladies who came back from a retreat. I saw... A lot of you coming back here, you look better. It's like you came back from a full weekend of spa treatment, but I know you went to a retreat, and so you know that's the Holy Spirit working, so that's wonderful. Um, so I want to remind you again that there is a larger group. If you're not part of our smaller group and you just want to attend a larger group, then talk to one of the elders who will be leading a, a larger group, and you can join theirs. You can even join mine, which will be around 12 to 12.30. We'll start in the multi-purpose room, but every elder has a, a larger group that they'll be leading today. Uh, and so you can come together for fellowship, food, and just a review of the sermon there too. So I encourage you to do that if uh, you are not part of one, and so that we could all have fellowship in the Lord together. Before we start uh, today's message, let's start with a prayer. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you, and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're continuing on this morning on the study, on our study of 1 Corinthians We have come to this final stretch of the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. If you have been along with us for this entire journey, I have little doubt that many of you have found how pertinent all the issues of the church in Corinth from 2,000 years ago are still pertinent today. Disunity still threatens to break apart churches. Leader or pastor envy from I follow Paul to Apollos. Sins of sexual immorality spanning from 
even sleeping with your father's wife to the orgiastic feasts in idol worship, to the misunderstanding on spiritual gifts and to what the resurrection really is. We have gone over a myriad of topics, once relevant to the church 2,000 years ago, still relevant today. I heard someone once said to the effect of, give me a Bible, lock me in a basement, take me out whenever, and I'll still be able to tell you what's wrong with the world today. Many claim that the things that we are facing today are novel problems for a modern world. But the fact is that from the beginning, humanity had one issue and one issue only. We made ourselves enemies with God. And the entire course of human philosophy and history has been where we either try to appease God or the gods, or even cease trying by denying his existence. One of my favorite psalms is the 19th Psalm. And in verse 1, it starts off by saying this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. This is an amazing verse to start with. And I got to tell you, that psalm just gets better with every verse. But this is a part of something that we call common grace. Common not meaning trivial, but common meaning universal. And grace meaning the unmerited favor of God. So common grace, while stopping short of salvation, extends to all walks of life that all people, while we are here on this earth, this common grace encompasses the air that we breathe and even to the joys that we have walking a beautifully manicured golf course. Recently, William Shatner, the actor who played the iconic character Captain James T. Kirk from Star Trek, went up 66 miles on a suborbital flight with Amazon or Blue Origin. At 90 years of age, he was the oldest person to ever enter space, and he was able to see the Earth from a perspective that few ever have. And after he landed, he was overwhelmed with emotion. And this is what he said. He said, I hope I never recover from this. I hope that I can maintain what I feel now. I don't want to lose it. You see, even with all the massive technological advances we have made, we have the ability to observe things in the ways we've never been able to before. But even though we have been able to observe things in the ways we've never been able to before, we still don't know how to explain. Which is why no matter how much you try to get into this evolutionary theory, you can never explain awe. You can never explain why humans have this response when we see something so majestic there's no words to describe it and you're just placed in a state of awe you see this is a nice mug 
And I can describe this cup. It's a black mug with a silver lip. With more and more technology, my descriptives become more detailed and accurate. This is a steel double-walled mug with an inner ceramic coating. It keeps liquids hot for longer than a conventional mug, maybe up to 12 hours. And included in, if you put the steel lid on top, the, the double-walled vacuum keeps that beverage really hot. And you don't get the metallic aftertaste because there is a ceramic inner coating. And you'd be like, yes, that's very nice. That's a good descriptive of the mug. This really is a good mug, by the way. It's a very nice descriptive. But how did it get here? How did this mug get here? So you could have all the descriptives that you want with all the hard sciences or the natural sciences, all the things that we can observe more and more, you can observe and have the descriptives. But the question is, that's nice, but how did it get there? What if because of my extensive knowledge of the descriptives, I tell you that there is something called spontaneous black paint on steel adhesion? And because I want to establish this, I will say the same for the inner ceramic coat. How would you feel if I said that? You see, descriptives are not explanations. What we have conflated is the ability to describe something with the understanding of the logical antecedents necessary to explain the phenomenon. This is why I love Psalm 19. It's one of my favorite psalms. From verses 1 to 6, we see the hard sciences, natural sciences. What they do is they point to the glory of God. Look at the sky. Look how beautiful the earth is. There is awe and wonder that comes from witnessing the immensity of creation. But from verse 7 on on, here comes the explanation. No more descriptives, but the explanation. This is where the maker of the cup comes in through the door and says, I made this cup, let me explain. This is what we call the word of God. This is a special revelation. It's the explanation. As incredible as the descriptives are, the explanation is utterly par excellence. This is what we study day in, day out, week after week, verse by verse. It's the Bible that contains the very word of God for God's people to live out God's will for God's glory. This brings me to the point that some have asked on the sermon last week, what is God's work or what is the Lord's work? Is it Mission work? Is it evangelism? Is it pastoral work? Or is it milking cows? What is it? Well, let me give you a brief explanation. Um, many have undertaken to explain work and faith in many, many sermons, but I'll just give you a brief explanation here. Work is something that has been ordained by God since the creation of man. Even before sin entered the world, Adam was assigned to work in the garden. 
The Lord's work is something that God assigns people to do. That's why, to understand it, we went over the three points of what the Lord's work is. And that's why you must understand that the Lord's work must be done in the Lord's way. If you do not, you can safely assume that it is not the Lord's work. And in the last day, it will be burned up, like it says in 1 Corinthians 3. This is why it should be a primary concern that you know what? The Lord's way. In Psalm 19, verse 7, it goes and it continues. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. If you want to know the Lord's work, it should go without saying that you must know the Lord's way. This is why in Acts, the entire church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Ah, but after hearing it, you want to know if the job that you're doing right now, the work that you're doing from 9 to 5, is that the Lord's work? My answer to that is, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Martin Luther would write about how God milks the cow through the milkmaid in a time where having a vocation. So he lived in a time where having a vocation or calling was exclusively referring to a full-time church position. So it's like, what's your calling? Then exclusively referred to a full-time church position. But he was able to articulate the doctrine, of the biblical doctrine of work, where there is a priesthood of all believers. Because whether you are a domestic worker, civic worker, factory worker, or even part of the clergy, all works are measured by faith and faith alone. This is the key to understanding work. Your work is measured by faith. It boils down to 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Then this doesn't just extend to your secular vocation, but it extends to everything that you do. And it can even mean going to church on Sunday. I was on a trip with a friend whose dad was an elder in the church. And so it was his whole family and just me. So it was his whole family and me. And we went on this uh, road trip that extended through the weekend. And for some reason, I can't forget this uh, trip. I specifically remember this trip of all the trips that I've went on because it extended through a Sunday. When Sunday arrived, I asked if we were attending a church. And my friend's dad... Remember, he was an elder of the church, said that we wouldn't because we were on the road. He didn't know of any churches. And it's what he said next that didn't sit well with me. He said, it's okay, God will understand. 
It's okay, God will understand. Every time we passed the church on the road, I wondered why we couldn't just stop in for a bit. Yeah, I was, I was that kid. I was that kid. And maybe that was legalistic. And thinking back, I don't doubt that there may have been some legalism intertwined with my worry. But how did my friend's dad know that God would understand? How was he so sure? What gave him that confidence and that ease of conscience while mine was burning? So looking back, I saw two forces at play here. One is legalism. Every Sunday I go to church. That's just what I did. My parents saw to it that it was ingrained in me, and it worked. However, I see that there is another force at play, and the other force is the God will understand. What will he understand? Because we have to be very careful if what we mean by God will understand, what we mean by that is, that God doesn't care if we do not obey him. Because that's a half step from that to God doesn't care if we sin. That's antinomianism. Anti meaning against. Nomianism from namas, which means law, which means anti-law. That's antinomianism. And both forces lead us away from God. One which legalism will lead us away from God because we think that by doing certain things, it will merit our salvation. It will earn us our salvation. And the reality is you will never be able to so fully obey as to earn your salvation. We need a Savior. And that Savior has come to us in the form of Jesus Christ. The other force is antinomianism because God forgives us through his son because of his sheer mercy. Through his son, Jesus, we think that we can go around committing any sin that we like. Be free. Do what you like. Do you. You do you. This is rank heresy. If you truly knew the depths to which God came down to save us, how could anyone be complicit or even dare celebrate the sin that God crucified his son for? This is from John Gerstner. I'm going to read you a quote to help us understand. I'm going to put this all into our understanding of works. And this is what he said. I come to Christ abounding in good works. This is what he said. I come to Christ abounding in good works. Absolutely essential to a Christian teacher and absolutely essential to you <clears throat> is if you would be a Christian person. To understand that works are absolutely necessary and absolutely non-meritorious. To think they're unnecessary is fatal. To think they're meritorious is fatal. Justification is in Christ alone, and Christ is in us only by a living and working faith. 
The way that I can help you conceptualize this is this way. Works do not lead to faith, but faith leads to works. If you have faith, then you will have works. Your works, therefore, must be works of faith. Knowing what I know now, me, knowing what I know now, while I know that going to church itself doesn't save me, because I am saved, I go to church. If I were to plan a vacation that went through a weekend, what do you think my priority would be? That's right. I would look for a church to attend. And I recognize it really is a glorious thing. Worshiping with the saints, albeit from a different locality. I love this church most dearly, dearly because I'm called to it. Every time I'm away, I miss CGS profoundly, but I am overjoyed to be able to worship the same God of all times and places, albeit in different locales. And so you might ask, what if there are no churches where I'm going, or if it's too difficult to plan to attend a church, etc.? And so that's where I boiled it down for us to understand. What does your faith, informed by the word of God, lead you to do? What does your faith, informed by the word of God, lead you to do? And I would think that I gave you these illustrations to help you to understand what the Lord's work is. But the Lord's work cannot be done without faith. If you want to read just a little bit more on God's will in your work, then there's a booklet entitled, Can I Know God's Will? Can I Know God's Will? It's free to download on Kindle, or it's about a buck to buy, hard copy of. And it's written by someone who happened to be one of John Gerstner, the man who I quoted before, one of John Gerstner's students. His name is R.C. Sproul. When we do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, we do it aboundingly. Aboundingly. In chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is why we mimic our Lord's zeal. When he was working, it was a consuming zeal. So understanding this, we came to four points or principles that we saw applied by Paul. Number one, to review friends, to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way with consuming zeal, you must plan. This may seem so basic, but unfortunately it escapes many Christians. They may plan vacations, careers, even families. But what is your plan when it comes to serving God? You see, Paul was a man of vision. He, needed to, he saw what needed to be done, and he strategized. He developed means and methods to accomplish goals. What are your plans? And are we planning, even as a church, are we planning to evangelize, share the gospel with, and teach as many people as we can? Or are we just simply floating around with no vision, no plan? Friends, we must plan 
And number two, the point was, these plans are to be flexible. Being a hard-nosed, stubborn planner may get you kudos in some places where you sing the song, I did it my way, but that's not true in God's kingdom. Paul makes it clear that he will adhere to the plan if God permits. And when he realizes God does not permit, he was able to be flexible and change his plans quickly. This isn't about your way or your will being done. God leads because it's his work. Number three, don't give up. Persevere. Why do people give up the work so easily? Perhaps it has something to do with not knowing that you have been called to do it until you drop. It's until you drop. It must be done thoroughly. It must be done completely. In the Great Commission, our Lord commands us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, then teaching them everything he commands us to observe. There is no such thing as a four-step discipleship program because discipleship isn't four steps. It's a lifelong commitment to learning and growing. And the fourth point was this. You must be able to discern. Discernment comes with worship, prayer, and at times even fasting. Godly discernment isn't something innate. It must be sought after. You have to look for it. In Proverbs 2, it even says this, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. We need more people to be able to discern maybe more than ever today. Sometimes I imagine our generation is sitting in front of a bowl of chicken soup, starving, complaining that we wanted tacos. It's discernment that will be able to give you the insight then to persevere, be flexible, and plan. It's how you will see legitimate open doors. You'll be able to see when we need leaders in the children's ministry. And you'll be able to recognize the skills that you've been equipped to teach with. Or the women's ministry. Or now the men's. Or smaller groups. Or Saturday morning cleaning. Or Sunday cleaning. Or fellowship and serving food. Or our welcoming team. There are so many more ways. But you wanted tacos. Right. Don't sit around for the perfect situation. Find the open door. Don't be selfish. Don't be inflexible. Go in those doors. And today we're going to move on to the next points. In verse 9 it says, For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. The fifth point is that there will be challenges. We are to expect challenges. If you are doing the Lord's work, the Lord's way, with consuming zeal, you will have adversaries. 
Jesus would say that no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, this doesn't mean at all that we should not be as winsome as possible. By all means, be winsome. Being winsome is a way we can show our love and care for the person we mean to win over. But being winsome isn't the same as befriending the world. I can't emphasize this enough. Being winsome is not the same as befriending the world. In fact, it's a guarantee that the world will not like you. You keep on preaching the gospel and people are taken out of the world and into God's kingdom, the world is going to take notice that their numbers are going down. Then you are guaranteed to face opposition. They may even start rumors about you. Your name may be dragged through the mud. You may be hated, accosted, and even physically harmed. So how should we see opposition when we do the Lord's work, the Lord's way, with consuming zeal. The apostles in Acts chapter 5 were evangelizing so effectively that it says, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. That's what it says. More than ever believers were added to the Lord. The Jewish leaders knew the things that the apostles were doing were amazing things. People were being healed left and right, and more signs and wonders were happening. And so to the Jew, this is evidence of God's work. Even Nicodemus admitted as much when he saw Jesus in John chapter 3. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The Jewish council knew, but they were jealous. They arrested the apostles, imprisoned them, beat them, and then even charged them not to teach in Jesus' name. When the apostles refused, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Mind you again, they knew. They knew. They knew that this was from God, but they did not care. And here's the point. When the apostles left that place, this is how they saw the opposition. When the apostles left that place, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is how the apostles saw opposition. Not only as something inevitable, but as a sign that showed them that they were counted worthy. If you are doing the Lord's work, the Lord's way with consuming zeal, you will face opposition. Then if you take it the other way then, if you've never faced opposition for your faith, you will soon, you will soon. Either that or you don't have faith because it's either one or, it's one or the other. And so my suggestion is this. Pray that when the opposition comes, you will be given strength to go into the fire. Because there is no other way that you can do this. You cannot do this by yourself. You can only do it when you are totally dependent on God. Yes, this is a challenge, but it's not 
one that you are called to fail. This challenge is given so that when you run out of resources, when you run out of strength, you'll be able to witness God's power. In verse 10, it goes on, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now we went over verse 10 last week, but it's also tied in with verse 11 because it's concerning Timothy. There are many things that you can learn from just this verse 11, but one of the primary things that we get to notice here is the sensitivity that Paul has to his fellow co-laborers. We see it also in verse 12, also concerning Apollos, but especially here. Paul is kind when he talks about his fellow co-laborers. He never goes, like he never goes, I'm the super apostle. These guys are my lackeys. He doesn't do that. He doesn't want anyone to despise Timothy because he too, what? is doing the work of the Lord. And here's the point. The Lord's work is done with partnership. The Lord's work is done with partnership. Paul knows that the Lord's work isn't done solo. If anyone, it would have been Paul. He was the greatest evangelist to the Gentiles. He, was, he wrote most of the epistles in the New Testament. He was the Paul. And yet he knew that Gospel work requires partnership. And I love that he lifted up Timothy. Timothy was not at the same level as Paul. Paul considered him to be a son of the faith. But he qualifies Timothy first, not by his attachment to him. He doesn't qualify Timothy by his attachment to him, but his attachment to the Lord. He's also doing the work of the Lord. That's how he qualifies Timothy. And when we see each other this way, it would be really hard to despise one another, wouldn't it? Remember, in the beginning of this chapter, the Corinthian church would develop these factions, breaking up the unity of the church. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Paul doesn't despise Apollos for this. You might think, like, yeah, why would he, though, right? But here we are, and I see the tendency to tear down others over would-be factions. I'm of this party. Are you with me or are you with her? I'm of this party, so you can't hang out with this group of people. That, simply put, is not of God. It's of Satan. Paul doesn't blame Apollos for the factions when he easily could have Hey, Apollos, man, you got people divided into groups. Man, what do you do? And Paulus could go on the defense of being like, I didn't do anything. Why are you blaming me? And then Paul could have went, well, you could have done more to prevent this disaster. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. No friction or tension between these two great men of God. Only there is a great love that Paul displays in his writings. He says in verse 12, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. He could have easily just wrote, Now concerning Apollos. But there is a warmth there in calling him our brother. 
There is no doubt that Paul was the man up front. He was the first among equals in that group setting. However, he didn't see himself as a super apostle. He referred to himself as a co-laborer along with everyone else doing God's work. That should lead us into understanding that this kind of partnership, there is dignity and honor in every part of the Lord's work. And if that's the case, we should treat each other that way. So there are two things under partnership that we can maintain from this passage. And one is support. Partners in faith support one another. Paul is showing, by example, the ridiculousness of factions. Paul, Apollos, Timothy, Cephas. No, we want to all be workers unashamed. He lifts them up and even calls on the church to help Timothy. It might go without saying, but a partnership supports one another. Are you a faction maker or are you a unifier when it comes to the Lord's work? Do you divide and tear down a brother or sister or do you support and lift them up? Imagine our staff. Imagine I went around saying, Pastor Paul is this and that. Look at his glasses. Mine are so much better. I don't know, whatever it is, right? <laughs> Imagine that. And Chunsak is this and that, you know. Look at his bench press, blah, boo, right? That would tear the staff apart. I would be creating a hostile work environment. Why do you think it's okay then that you create a hostile church environment? Support your co-laborers. The second point to partnership that is that it is selfless. The first part was the partnership supports. And the second part is that it is selfless. When Paul used the phrase, now concerning, he was addressing a topic. Every time we saw the words in the letter, now concerning, he was addressing a topic that the Corinthian church had brought up prior. It's likely that this issue of wanting Apollos to visit them was brought up while Paul and Apollos were together in Corinth. Paul could have easily wanted Apollos to stay out of the picture now that he has addressed every major issue in his letter, but instead he urges Apollos to go. He go, he, Apollos, go. They want you. They love you. Go, brother. Apollos, on the other hand, didn't want to go back to Corinth where he was a star of a certain faction. He could have gone back and be like, yes, I'm all that. But he chooses not to. You see, in all these decisions, who's front and center? In all these decisions, who is front and center? The Lord is front and center. There is no personal ambition that Paul or Apollos have. They don't want to make their name known. They don't want to be famous. They don't do it for the follows, the likes, or the comments. They do it for God. They don't do it because they feel like it or because they don't feel like it, they don't do it. None of their actions are centered on themselves. You know, we live in a society where everything is self-centered. It's all about self-care, self-esteem, self-actualization, self-ease. 
But the Lord is showing us that selfish motives will only lead to radical depravity, disunity, and a stunted growth in the church. So if you want to be holy, you want to be unified, and you want to be mature in the faith, we must do the Lord's work, the Lord's way, with consuming zeal. I'll end with this story. I came across a story once that also stayed with me. It's about a Northwestern student. His name was Edward W. Spencer. Around 2 a.m. on September 8th in 1860, a steamship named Lady Elgin collided with a schooner, Augusta. Schooner is like a, a sailboat. A steamship is like a ship that runs on steam. Anyway, and so it collided in 1860 on September 8th in Lake Michigan. Elgin was carrying more than 300 passengers at the time. And after it collided, because it was dark, they didn't know how bad the damage was, so they kept on, they kept on chugging along. But the ship literally broke apart in the cold, cold waters. Hundreds of people died. And some people survived clutching onto the floating debris. And they were floating for hours and hours in those cold waters. Some tried to make it back, but there was a fierce undertow. It would push them back into the middle of the waters. It was that night, Edward Spencer, an experienced swimmer, he tied a rope around his waist, swam out in those cold waters to find a survivor. He would put the rope over the victim, and the people on the shore would pull that rope to bring the person back. He would then take the rope and swim out again to find someone else with the rope. He did this over and over again for over six hours. His body was covered with injuries and completely exhausted. He passed out. And it's said that because of these injuries, he was a semi-invalid for the rest of his life. But he did this for six hours until he passed out. And when he woke up, he woke up in the infirmary and he saw his brother William standing over him. And the first thing that he said was this, Will, did I do my full duty? Did I do my best? Will, did I do my full duty? Did I do my best? He saved 17 people that night. And in his obituary, it's written that because of that night, he was a semi-invalid for the rest of his life, but he didn't care about that. The people on the shore, every time he came back, the people on the shore tried to stop him. Despite the numerous injuries from the floating wreckage, he repeatedly plunged himself back into the waters and right now he has a cast bronze plaque dedicated to him in Northwestern that you can find on campus. I believe it's a story for us to remember. I believe it's something every Christian should be asking. Did I do my full duty? Did I do my best? And this is my hope and prayer for you that remembering what the Lord did for you, you now in faith will abound in the Lord's work, in planning as the Lord permits, with persevering, perceiving open doors, rejoicing in persecution, 
and in full partnership with one another, supporting each other without selfish ambition, but doing the Lord's work, the Lord's way, with consuming zeal for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. We thank you that it is by your word and the power of your Holy Spirit that we are transformed, that we are given strength to do the work that is set before us. Help us not to squander what time we have left on this earth, but help us to work so that we can say we did our best for your glory. Oh God, give us this grace, grant us your strength. Let's take this time to pray. How is the Lord leading you to serve God, to give your best to him? There is a time to serve him, and that time is now. So let's pray and lift up our hearts to him.